Welcome to Claim the Stage, a podcast for women who want to discover, awaken, and create their voice through the art of public speaking. I'm your host, Angela Lucier, award-winning professional speaker, author, and CEO and founder of The Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. Welcome back, friends. So excited for today's episode. Our guest today is Nicole Hendrick Donovan, and she was a member of Speaker Sisterhood, and she reached out to me a month or two ago and said, hey, I wrote this book, and I'd love to tell your listeners about it. And I asked her to send me a copy, and I'm so glad I did, because I spent... Every free moment I had looking through it, reading it, and it's a long book, it's about 300 pages, and I got through it and felt like, what an important book for anybody. (laughs) I mean, the themes in the book are so relatable, and the lessons and these moments that life hands you where you go, what? Why? Okay, all right, let me figure this out, and then you come out with more wisdom, more confidence, and maybe, you know, just feeling like you can do anything. So today's episode, we're going to explore Nicole's book, and we're going to also explore her process of writing the book. I know lots of people who want to write a book, and whenever I come across someone who did, I ask them how, because she may be able to share some tidbits with you that might help you to get to writing more often or getting your book published. So before we jump into the interview, let me tell you a little bit about Nicole. Nicole Hendrick Donovan is an author, a reflective storyteller, spiritual seeker, and a teacher. She's a former Montessori educator who has worked with a variety of students with various needs. After her son's autism diagnosis, she became an ABA therapist and worked directly with children and families in the autism community. In July of 2020, Nicole published A Life Suspended, a mother and son's story of autism, extinction bursts, and living a resilient life. And that's the book we're going to talk about today. She's also a contributor for The Mighty, an online magazine for people with disabilities. I hope you enjoy listening to us talk about the book as much as I love reading it. If you want to get your own copy, the link to purchase it is in the show notes. Without further ado, here's my interview with Nicole Hendrick Donovan. All right, Nicole Hendrick Donovan, welcome to Claim the Stage. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. You had reached out to me, I guess it was about a month and a half ago, and had told me about your book, and you sent me a copy, and I have been devouring it every free moment I get, and I've just really looked forward to spending time with you and your family in the pages of this book. So I want to talk to you today about your process of writing the books. I think that would be really helpful for others who have a story to tell and want to put it into writing, and I also want to talk to you about the contents of the book. But before we get into that, can you tell us what the book is about? It's called A Life Suspended. Can you give us a little summary of what people can expect from it? Sure. It's a book. um, It's the story of my son and myself and when he was diagnosed with high-functioning autism. And it basically gives you insight to a couple years of our lives and how we navigated building a team for educating him and therapeutic supports and, and what that looked like from the inside out. 
and how we manage to find resiliency (laughs) in in how to move through that with grace and ease. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the summary. And what made you decide to write this book? Um, I decided to write this book because I, I felt and found out from other people's input that our story wasn't unique, that there were other families that were going through similar challenges, dealing with trying to educate their children or getting supports or just navigating these uncharted waters. And and when I was in the throes of it, I felt really isolated and I didn't have opportunities to, to be surrounded by supports because I was at home with my son. So I couldn't get to a lot of support groups. I couldn't reach out in that way. So I reached for story. I reached for other people telling me how they got through it. And I wanted to be inspired and I wanted to know it was okay. And I was going to be okay. So this is my way of paying it back. And I felt it was so, it was the story. I wrote the story I wanted to hear when I was in it. Mm -hmm. What would you say was the most influential book you read at that time that really helped you get through it? Um, It was interesting before, right before he was diagnosed, I read Look Me in the Eye by John Elder Robinson. And and it was a great story because it gave me a framework of what Asperger's, because that was his diagnosis, looked like. And then when I moved through it, I, excuse me, I um, I watched a documentary called um, Billy the Kid, and that was so inspiring for me because I saw my son in it, and because it was a film. I could watch it, you know, I could see it visually. And that was fantastic. And then as I was getting through in the process of writing the book, the early stages, I read a book called um, Life Animated by Ron Suskind. And he actually read the book. Um, So I listened to an audible, (laughs) which I loved because I could hear the father telling the story and I found that kept me going, you know, like it kept me moving forward with this desire to tell our story. So it was just lovely. You came up with the title, A Life Suspended for the book. Can you share what that title means to you? Yeah, I, you know, the title came well into writing the book and uh, it was, <laughs> I have it saved on my laptop as the book for a long time. (laughs) And, um, you know, because it's hard, it's a hard thing. It has to, you know, like it has to, it has to have meaning. And for us, it was like, as I reflected and processed our story by writing it, I thought in so many ways, at so many different times during this period, we were suspended. We were suspended because he was, you know, expelled from school. I was suspended in many ways in my life from I had to quit my job and be a a caregiver full time for Jack. And then we were also suspended in love and being that I watched over the, that year, all these people came in and they guided us and they helped us. So it just felt very, um, you know, metaphorical in a way that, 
the title was fitting on a, a few different you know levels yeah because the book starts out with jack getting suspended from school yeah. and then yeah and then the the suspension takes on all kinds of different meanings what were the techniques you used to get yourself to write? I think this is where a lot of people struggle. They have an idea for a book. They have a story they want to tell. And then the actual sitting down at the computer and putting those ideas and, you know, stories down is a whole other story. So how did you actually get yourself to do it? Well, my motivation was, was key. I think having an intention that this was a book that I wanted the story I wanted to get out to the world because I felt like it was, it, it needed to be of service. It was bigger than me. So having an intention and every, and, and anytime I would feel like that resistance to go and, Oh, I have to sit down and, and write again, it's specifically for me and my experience with this book that the editing process, which is part of writing was very taxing emotionally. And I would be in a funk, um, you know, when I was editing because I was really healing through the story again, over and over and over again. But I kept returning to that intention. My intention is this is bigger than me. It needs to be out in the world. And that really helped me. But in terms of like the daily grind of like, uh, you know, having a structure and things like that, you know, I've read a lot of people doing it different ways and a lot of famous writers talk about their process and whatever. And what I've, what I've come to learn for myself is that it's really individual to that person. My best time to write is in the morning. That may not be true for somebody else, depending if they have kids or a family or they need to work. Um, you know, so I think finding my advice to anybody that's trying to like figure that out is they really need to look within themselves and not look out to see what everybody else is doing, but look to see what, what is going to work for them. Not only structure of day in terms of responsibilities, but in terms of when their energy level is up, when they're feeling good, you know, that, that kind of thing. I, I really feel it helped me understand what my process would, would be. Yeah, that's great advice. I have a friend who's a total night owl and he loves to write. And for years, he kept trying to force himself to write in the morning because all of the famous writers would talk about getting up at 5 a.m. and writing before the sun comes up. And so he kept trying to force himself to do that. And then finally, he said, I, I know that I'm most energetic and I'm most alive when the world is actually kind of dark and people are asleep and it's late at night and I've already done all the other things that I want to do for the day. So he created a writing regiment between midnight and 2 a.m. And he was able to write his book in a couple of months versus the years it had taken him trying to fight his own rhythms and cycles. So I think it's really good advice to just kind of do what works for you. And I also love the idea of having your intention and like as Simon Sinek says, start with why. And even going as far as writing down your intention and like hanging it on a little, you know, on a, a bulletin board or something next to your computer so you can constantly be reminded of it. Cause you're right. Some days it's like, it's too emotional. It's you're exhausted. You don't want to look at it again, but if you remember why you're doing it, that can definitely keep you going. One of the, the things you talked about at the end of the book was that you had felt a lot of shame and you felt shunned and alone when, when you were kind of going through this process of learning more about Jack and his diagnosis and trying to get services for him. And then eventually as you spent more time and 
um, started to get more, I guess, educated and confident, you felt moved to share your story. So when you were thinking about putting the book together, how did you decide what to share and what to leave out? Yeah, that was simple. Um, That was really simple to discern for me because I knew that if I wasn't going to tell the whole story and have it be vulnerable and raw, that I wasn't going to tell the story because I felt like, you know, part of, part of my hope for this book was to build understanding and compassion and empathy from other people that may not have somebody in their family or somebody in their life that has a disability or has, you know, Asperger's high functioning autism. So I, I, I guess for me, when, when I thought about behavior and started to understand that there was always a reason for behavior, that it came from somewhere. And when I would be on the other side of that coin as a mom who didn't have a child that was be, that had heightened behaviors at the time when I was younger, and I would judge other, other families, you know, that were having kids that were lashing out in schools or being disruptive or whatever. And I would judge them having a viewpoint from the other side now where my son was the the one that was quote unquote creating trouble. Um, It helped me want to give that lens to other people to help them understand because I knew what it was like on the other side. I knew that there was always a reason for behavior that maybe a diagnosis was not being picked up Maybe it was an itchy tag in the back of his sweatshirt. It could be a number of different things, but providing that information for families or for other people, I felt that we could build compassion. We could build some empathy. You have been a member of Speaker Sisterhood and you have used speaking as a way to get your message out there and promote your book. Any advice you would give to other authors who want to use speaking to promote their message? Yes, I would say, um, you know, just practice your craft. Don't be afraid to do it on a different platform. Zoom has been great for me. I've been able to reach further um, audiences because it's not a local thing. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a first time author, so you know, going to local libraries and speaking at you know different small organizations is how I was getting my message out. And when COVID happened, that changed the landscape of opportunities that was open for me. I have not had a traditional book signing or anything like that. So, you know, it's just having, um, being able to pivot and using the skills um, that I had honed in Speaker Sisterhood has really helped me have the confidence to be flexible to do that. Excellent. I think that's great that you were able to pivot and see it as an opportunity to reach new audiences and new organizations because yeah, it's it's been really difficult for new authors and really, you know, everybody who's trying to get a message out. So that's really good advice. Now, 
as I was reading your book, I kept on imagining myself in your shoes, which I think is probably one of your goals is to try to connect with the reader and relate to them. And as a mother of a son, you know, I kept on really feeling for you and your struggle and your frustrations and your questions and wanting to get answers and get everyone on the same page. And I wanted to know what writing the book did for you as a mother and a woman. And I know you talk about this a little bit at the end of the book. Yeah, it's interesting too, because, you know, since the ending of the book, what I've realized um, <laughs> self-publishing and, and putting myself out there um, that the experience of, you know, having a son with special needs and, and doing everything that we did to build a team for him and to coordinate and execute and communicate with all these members, you know, being that caseworker, that really, really helped me not only feel like I could do this on my own, but also it gave me the confidence I needed to to assemble that team, you know, and in writing a book and publishing it, you know, being a self-published author, there's a lot of arms of responsibility or organization that I needed to, to access, you know, whether it was an editor or whether it was marketing components or hiring somebody to do the cover, all of those things, you know, had to come from the center, which was me. And, you know, moving into that energy of feeling like I could do it and that I didn't have to rely on somebody else to pick me was huge, was really huge. It really helped me build my independence and break patterns that I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it alone. I love that. And I, I have that same feeling about self-publishing and the empowerment that comes from being able to be in charge of every step of the process for sure. Okay. So I want to talk about the content of the book a little bit. One thing I noticed as I was reading it was as, as each chapter went on, I kept thinking, oh my God, there's so much coordination. There are so many meetings, the amount of notes you had to keep and emails you had to send and phone calls you had to make and, you know, visits and just discussions with your husband and all those providers. I started to feel frustrated as a reader, just feeling like, oh my God, this is like going on for months and months and months. And there's really no like it didn't feel like any relief was happening. And then it wasn't until page 189 when you went to visit um, a developmental pediatrician at Tufts when mm. um, you got some sort of relief. So I wanted to read a couple of paragraphs here and talk about what it was like as a reader. And I'd love to hear more about your experience in depth beyond what you wrote here. Um, the doctor that you saw was named Dr. Millis. And you wrote, Dr. Millis examined Jack, read all of Jack's history, along with interviewing Mike, your husband, and me, and produced recommendations that were in line with Dr. Chambers' neuropsychological report. It felt a bit repetitive, but strategically speaking, it validated the type of educational programming, setting, and supports Jack required. Before we left her office, she paused and placed her pen down in front of her on her desktop. She looked back and forth between us and she finally spoke. 
You are Jack's biggest and best advocates. Both of you have worked so hard in giving Jack what he needs, and that is not an easy road. You've done well. She smiled widely, and we said our goodbyes. I was quiet on the drive home, thinking about her words, their weight resonating inside me, filling me. I thought of Mike and all we have, all we have and all we are together. I couldn't imagine doing this, any of it, without him. Maybe I don't see the scope of what I do every day, but neither does he. He never complains. He just powers through. It's not what he focuses on. He focuses on us. His drive is only matched by one thing, his love for his family. I reached for his hand and gave it a squeeze as he navigated through Boston city traffic, making the long ride home to Cape Cod. And that's the end of the chapter. And I cried so hard reading those paragraphs because I finally felt like you had gotten validation and you had gotten answers and you had gotten just this, a little cheerleading, you know, and I, I felt like that wasn't happening. You guys were working so hard and advocating and trying to, put pieces of information together. And it wasn't until page 189 that I finally felt like, oh my God, oh, I can finally breathe again. So as a reader, I felt that way. And I want to know more about how you felt in that moment. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, that moment, you know, it definitely felt like, okay, someone, I mean, cause you know, that program, the professionals at Tufts, that's a big deal as well. And to have the, the weight of the professionals, you know, with the Dr. Chambers as well, she's very, very well known in her field. So, I mean, having the, the weight of these people, you know, validate what we were going through, validate his diagnosis. Cause I was always afraid, like, oh my gosh, are they going to take this, this diagnosis away from him? Um, and when we were going through it at the time, the, the, um, the, the way the di diagnostic tool um, was being revised, um, or at least the DMV-5, I believe it's called. So uh, I was nervous about the language and, you know, how would that look? So there was, there was some worries behind the scenes, too, in terms of as we went to these different meetings and these, you know, enlisted these different professionals, like how that was going to be digested and executed by them. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely felt... I felt relieved. Um, I felt very relieved when we got the diagnosis from Dr. Chambers because I felt like, man, that finally, I'm finally being heard. And I feel that, you know, for so long, I kept saying there's something else, there's something else, there's something else. So I think honestly, I felt more of a relief during that, that meeting than I did at Tufts because I finally had a label that was solid that people could start to work with. And mm -hmm. then when we saw the woman at Tufts, she, she validated that. So it was just further, further validating of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely came across in the way that you wrote it. Now, later in the book, you tell the story of Pirate Day, which was part of Jack's <laughs> sailing lessons. Can you share what that is and what you learned about yourself that day while you were sitting on the beach? Yeah, that was a pretty striking moment. You know, Pirate Day, just to give people a backstory, Pirate Day was a big deal. Um, and I think it probably still is. In the town that we were living at, um, in at the time, um, they have a, a sailing program. And all of my children did the sailing program. And the last 
day they had a, an event called Pirate Day. You know, you worked two weeks up to this moment of, you know, getting skills where you'd you'd be on your 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 boat, you and your partner, and you'd go around to the different islands within this pond or lake, and you would find tr the treasure. You know, so and then people, <laughs> my children. It was a great idea to, you know, hijinks to, to, you know, sabotage other boats. And, you know, so there was rules created uh, specifically during the years that my older children were involved. So, you know, the ante was pretty high in terms of, you know, our status being um, big players in the pirate game um, when Jack came through. And so because <laughs> he's heard the stories for years and years. So. It was interesting when I was sitting on the beach and I was looking out at the boats going back and forth from island to island. And what I realized was so striking because I realized that I had absolutely no control over if Jack was going to have a behavior. And what I realized was is that I had literally no control over what his choices would be or what his behaviors may be on the water. And it was really humbling because it really was, it brought me to my knees that I could only do what I could do for myself. I could only do what I could do for Jack. But in the end, it ultimately was up to him. And was that um, empowering? It was, yeah, it was empowering because it, 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 you know, it's kind of like a double-edged sword on one, in one respect, I felt like, oh my gosh, I have no, I have no control. But then it made me, you know, have this perception of, well, of course, you know, it's silly to think that I did have control. It's silly to think that I could be the end all and be all for this child or for anybody for that matter. You know, that ultimately it's up to that person. And I, I had to learn how to let go. And I had to learn to just allow the process to happen, whether he was going to have a behavior or not. It was all part of it. And that whatever we had done leading up to that moment was enough, that I was enough, that Jack was enough, and that I had to really just let go and surrender. Yeah, I think you also reiterated that revelation in the story you share about going to the drive-in movie and realizing you don't have to be on all the time and it's okay to just kind of have fun and things are going to shake out the way that they do. Exactly. Um, another theme in the book was being imperfect and trusting yourself. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? Jack, there was so much focus on on what he, what needed to be added to his program or things that, you know, his, his deficits for lack of a better word, things that he didn't have that he needed um, in terms of skill sets and supports. And um, so I became hyper-focused on watching him and analyzing him and, and, you know, every minute of the day. And what happened to me because I was kind of white knuckling this whole experience um, in the beginning that I was so focused on the negative components of that, of what wasn't happening or what was, what was the lack 
you know, that when I had that mindset, it really set me up for that perfection. Like, what is the perfect scenario? How can we build this program? Oh, we need this. We need that. And, and, and there was things that he absolutely needed, but I was so, I was so stressed about finding the ways that he, of, of things that it was lacking that it, I ended up really having a difficult time and having even panic attacks because I really felt so, so strongly about just getting it right you know, getting it right for Jack, getting it right for, for him to be successful. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, was. it was a lot of pressure. Yeah. And I think you saying that is giving permission to others who might be feeling like they need to be doing that. And it's okay to take your foot off the gas pedal a little bit too, and try not to feel so much of that pressure and control. I think one of my biggest takeaways from the book was it's really important to love our kids and be there for our kids, but to also love ourselves and to not lose ourselves in trying to be the best parent we can be and to be gentle with ourselves the way that we are with our children, no matter how big the struggle, because, you know, at the end of it, it's like, yeah, the life suspended. It's like, your life was suspended. Jack's Jack was suspended. You, you were both sort of in limbo and enmeshed and trying to work through this whole thing together. And as you described the, your experience, it just felt so painful. Like I could feel that the mother's pain and a woman's pain of feeling lost in this whole, you know, humongous transition. And I just thought like, I, man, if I was going to go through something like that, I would try so hard to feel so much compassion for myself of course, for my child as well, but to keep practicing it for myself, because I think I would often forget to do that. And I think it was a really good lesson and a really good message. And you're definitely in service in writing this book for, for any parent, any mother, any, any woman who, um, you know, kind of has to go through something like this, or just wants to learn more about what would happen if they did, you know, so thank you so much for writing the book. Oh, thank you for reading it and for, you know, having me on the show to help promote awareness for autism and just all of those things of, of believing in ourselves and moving through some challenges. Absolutely. Where can we find the book? You can find the book on Amazon. Um, also, it's on IndieBound if uh, people f- prefer to go that route. And, um, and also Barnes & Noble through their website. Okay. And what's your website? My website is nhdwrites.com. Okay, great. And all the information is there too. And you can also even read sample chapters of the book and reviews. Great. So I will link to all of those in the show notes. So anyone who wants to pick up a copy or learn more about you can check that out there. So Nicole, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was really nice to talk with you. And thanks for sharing your book with us. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, you can show me some love by leaving a rating and review wherever you listen so more people can find us. Claim the Stage is a production of Speaker Sisterhood, and it's recorded in the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Music is composed by Chris Collins. Until next time, stop waiting, start creating. Bye for now.